We want to thank and praise you, almighty God, that you want us to know you, that though you are holy, 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 as we've been thinking, you've opened up a way for us, despite all of our dirtiness, to be brought back to you, to be purified, to be made like you, and to live in relationship with you. And we pray that you would enrich each one of us in our walk with you this evening, that we'd know more of you, we'd know more of ourselves, we'd know more of the salvation that is in Jesus, and we would be renewed in our walk with you, we pray, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I'm going to read then from Exodus chapter 20. I think I'm going to read down to verse uh, 19. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sounds of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Please do keep that open in front of you. Now, um, I suspect that we all have a uh, kind of a love-hate relationship with the law. Um, On the one hand, we're grateful for the rule of law in our land. We probably like feeling safe in our homes. And as though when people do bad stuff, they'll be taken off the streets that criminals will get their due. But then, I don't know if you drive, but if you're driving down a motorway late at night, it's empty and there are meant to be roadworks. And so the speed limit has gone down to 40, but there's not a roadwork, nor a worker, nor another car in sight. You may find at that point that the, your love of the law diminishes a little bit and you find the law inconvenient. It feels arbitrary. It feels as though it's encroaching on your freedom uh, needlessly. If that is true of speed limits, it's even more true of God's law. Um, The Bible says that God's law is holy, 
and righteous and good, that it is perfect in its standards, that it is good for humanity. But by nature, it feels like a a chain that binds and restricts us. We want to be the captain of our soul. We want to set the course for our life. We want to do whatever we want to do. And so the notion that someone, God, might interfere and uh, have the right to tell us how we should live, that he could restrict um, what we think of as our right to self-expression and to self-determination, doesn't just feel boring and outdated, but often a deep offense against our whole being. Uh, that's an attitude you can find inside the church as well. We um, often hear people say something like, the, the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New. Uh, as far back as the second century, a guy called Marcion said, there's not one God, but two. There's a, a nasty God in the Old Testament who's all fixated on law and judgment. But then there's nice Jesus in the New who's all about love and grace. And even if we wouldn't agree with that, many of us still feel slightly nervous of the law pages in our Old Testament. Not really sure what we're meant to do with them. Can we basically ignore them today? The snag is that Jesus said the opposite. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So have you ever wondered, what is a Christian meant to do with the law of the Old Testament? 2 Timothy says that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Romans 15, again, the verse on the sheet, is it? I think, yeah, it is, uh, says of the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So how does the Old Testament law instruct and encourage us today? How does it train us in righteousness? How does it fill us with hope? Are there some bits of it that we're meant to obey and others that we're free to ignore? And if so, how do you decide which is which? Uh, We won't this evening answer all of those questions fully. They're complex issues and they've stumped far greater brains than my own. But I hope we will this evening begin to get a general introduction as we make our way into this series on the Ten Commandments. I've got four ways this evening that the law continues to speak to us today. First, the law points up to reveal our God. Um, I've already called them the Ten Commandments. That's probably how you uh, think of them as well. Maybe better to think of them as the Ten Words. That's actually what they're called in the Old Testament itself. Uh, and the f- but I bet when we think of them, the first thing that comes to mind is a list of rules that we're meant to obey. But long before we think about obeying these words, I want us to see that they reveal the character of God to us. Uh, God never wanted us to be left in the dark about him. He wants us to know him as he truly is. And so all through history, actually, he has been revealing himself to us. He does it in a general way through 
the creation around us. He does it through his deeds in history. Supremely, of course, he does it through his son, the Lord Jesus. But he also does it through his law. And everything about the the setting when these ten words were given to Israel highlights the significance of this moment for us. If you were to glance up to verse 6 of chapter 19, you'd see that there was thunder and lightning. There's a thick cloud. There's a, a trumpet blast that makes everyone tremble. Then in verse 18 of our own passage, as we read, the Lord descends on the mountain, sorry, in the, the last one, the Lord descends on the mountain in fire, smoke billows up from a, as from a furnace. This time the whole mountain trembles violently. It's an awesome scene. In itself, the scene is a revelation of the majesty of God. This is the God who had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He'd brought them to Mount Sinai. Now he is defining the nature of his relationship with them. This is a momentous moment in the history of the world. But if the the general setting reveals something of God's majesty, the words reveal his character. So if you glance down, he says... You shall have no other gods before me. It's not just because he's the creator and the sustainer of everyone, but because it's right that the people that he has saved should serve him only. He says, you shall not bow down to images or worship them, because this is a a jealous God in the right sense of that word, who is worthy of and who demands complete allegiance so it goes on, no murder, because this is the God who gives life. No adultery, because he is the faithful one. No stealing, because he's the generous giver and provider. No false testimony, because he's the God of truth and he cannot lie. And the point is that the law is such a clear revelation of the character of God that as people obey the law, so we become like him. There's a verse in Leviticus that sums it up well. He says, be holy as I am holy. So before we think of these ten words as commandments, I want to encourage us to think of them as ten invitations to reflect God's character in the world. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing that as people watch how we live, so they get a glimpse of the character of the God who made them and who has loved us and supremely made himself known in Christ. More of that to come, but for now just glance on to uh, verses 18 to 20 of chapter 20 and see where this revelation of left God's people, I'm putting an implication with each of these points, and very literally it put the fear of God into them. They didn't need to be afraid as though God was going to act in some irrational way ever or that he would act in a way that was contrary to his nature. It wasn't that they were walking on on eggshells because they weren't sure that he might lose his temper. But they did need to fear him because this God is a very big and holy God who blazes in righteous perfection as we've been thinking all evening. And we dare not trifle with him. Let me ask you what you make of these responses to God. 
Someone says, I sort of fit God in around everything else in my life. Someone says, I like the idea that God is there when I need him. Someone says, I pick and choose which bits of God's word I listen to. Compare that to Hebrews 12. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. First today then, the law points up to reveal our God. Second, the law points in to expose our sin. Uh, and here I want to suggest that the law is a bit like the, the clever spray that they use on CSI. You've ever seen crime scene investigation, any other police show, they all have the same stuff, don't they? To the naked eye, the kitchen knife looks clean and we're all wondering who committed the murder. They put the special spray on, they put the right color of light onto it and it, the kitchen knife is uh, covered in blood. Uh, the blood was always there, but the spray, the, the light, makes the blood visible. And God's law has a, a similar effect on our hearts. It exposes what we're really like. Uh, someone said to me, before I started coming to church, this is a really interesting thing. I don't know if you've ever thought something like this. Before I started coming to church, I thought I was a good person. But as I learned about God, I've discovered that I'm more selfish than I ever realized. That wasn't because they'd become a worse person, as though we'd been kind of saying, oh, you should go around lying and hitting people and being really unkind to them. They, they hadn't become a worse person. But because when we meet God in his word, like the, like the blood on a knife, that's when our selfishness becomes visible. This is Paul in Romans 7. He said, I wouldn't have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Give me one second. He said, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. So I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. So there is nothing wrong with God's law. It is righteous, it is designed for our good, but it has this knack of exposing what we're really like, like a, like a searchlight, it shines into the dark recesses in my heart. It, it exposes what I'm really like. And in that sense, we can think of these 10 words as being like a list of 10 divine charges against us. Have I ever put something above God? Has my worship of Jesus ever been less than perfect? Have I ever misused God's name? Have I ever sought rest and satisfaction outside of God? Have I ever dishonored my parents? Have I ever hated someone in my heart? Have I ever looked at a woman lustfully? Have I ever stolen? Have I ever told a lie? Have I ever been jealous or coveted something? I know my answer. I wonder what yours is. We, we tend to start deflecting. Well, I might be guilty, but I'm not as guilty as that person over there. Or I may have broken some laws, but, but look at all the laws that I've kept. But James, the brother of Jesus, writes in the New Testament, whoever keeps the whole law 
and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. Because as soon as I reserve the right to break some of the law when it suits me, what I'm really saying is that I don't really care about him. And God doesn't say, love me with as much of your heart and soul as you you feel like whenever it's convenient. And feel free to pick and choose which of your neighbors you love when you think you'll find it rewarding to do so. And so whenever we hear God's law read, soon our, our protestations run dry, we run out of excuses, we fall silent before God's law, as those of you who have studied Romans will see. And it's because God's law exposes and condemns us. The implication must be humility. And one of the elements of the communion service in the the Church of England 1662 Book of Common Prayer was that the, the minister would read through the Ten Commandments one after the other. And the congregation would reply, Lord, have mercy upon us. And there was something very healthy about that. When a church is working well, one of the things that would be really attractive about it is that no one thinks of themselves more highly than they ought. And no one treats other people with contempt or judges them when they fail. And it's because we realize that for all of our differences, we're fundamentally the same. We are all filthy, rotten sinners who have been loved by God. That leads to our third point this evening. The law points ahead to Jesus and his work. There's so much to say here. There's at least three whole talks in this. But the headlines, and first, Jesus himself obeyed the law perfectly. Uh, He was a Jew, so he was born under the law. But unlike any other Jew, he kept the law perfectly and continually. So he never had a bad day when he dropped his God, or when he was feeling tired. He never had a momentary lapse when the pressure was on. He never once allowed his mind to linger on a sinful desire. He never once acted selfishly or spoke unkindly. He was tempted in every way, as we are, yet he was without sin. Uh, A friend of mine gives this challenge to his friends. He says, see if you can go 24 hours without saying, thinking, or doing anything that is unkind or impure or untrue. And it should be easy, shouldn't it? All the education many of us have had, to be able to go one day, to be that in control of ourselves, that we can go a single day without letting ourselves down. Uh, We can't even do a day. Jesus managed a lifetime. He loved God perfectly. He loved his neighbor as himself. He was without blemish. That's why he was able to pay the price for our law-breaking. The wages of sin are death. If Jesus had sinned even once, he would have had to die and be punished for his own sin. It's only because he was perfect that he could stand in and bear the penalty for you and me. Paul in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 
Crucially then, the law doesn't just show us our sin, it shows us our saviour as well. And this is the truth, as we often say, that stands right at the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, when our children were much younger, we taught them to explain the cross to their friends by using an, an old illustration that dates back to Victorian times. Many of you will know it. It says, imagine that this book is a complete list of all of my sins. That written in here is every time I've ever chosen to say or do the wrong thing. And every time I've ever failed to say or do the right thing. That it's all listed in here. And on every page is stamped God's verdict on my life. Guilty. Deserving of hell. Well, by rights, if this hand represents me, you know that I should bear all of that sin and judgment myself. But on the cross, if this hand is Jesus, the, the most amazing swap happened. Because all of my sin and all of the judgment that it deserved was taken off me and laid upon Jesus. So that as he died, he was bearing the punishment that I deserve. And instead, he was giving me all of his own righteous perfection so that I would be free to relate to God as my father. And the law was always intended to magnify the sacrifice that Christ would make when he offered himself upon the cross. It shows us the vast depths of our own sin in order to highlight the unsearchable riches of his grace. I'm really hoping this term will go away every Sunday evening saying, praise God for Jesus. There's more than that. The Lord didn't just point ahead to the work that Jesus would do for us, but also to the transforming work he would do in us. As I've said, we can think of these 10 words as 10 invitations to be like God, 10 charges against us for failing to be like God. You can think of them too as 10 promises this is really liberating, I think. If you've ever, only ever thought of these 10 words as commandments, hear how differently they feel as promises. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. When we put our trust in Jesus, he doesn't just forgive us for our failures to keep his law. He also writes his law upon our heart. And he comes to dwell inside us in the person of his Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. You'll know that one of the most discouraging things for a Christian is the way that we keep struggling with the same sins over and over again. How often have you had to come back to God? It's tiring and it's humbling in prayer and to say, it's me again and I have done it again. And so it is refreshing to read these 10 words as 10 promises that God has not finished with us yet. As 10 reminders that the one who began a good work in you will not abandon you, but will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That the day is coming in the new creation when you will live perfectly in obedience to your God. And the law is like a telescope. It's written all those hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years before Jesus, but deliberately pointing beyond itself to Jesus 
and the work that he would come to do. His perfect obedience, his perfect sacrifice, and his patient work of transformation in us. The implication can only be gratitude. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Finally, the law points down to the nitty-gritty of life. Ten invitations, ten charges, ten promises. There are also ten commandments that God wanted his people to obey with all of their heart. I want us to be really, really, really clear. Can you um, wake up if you've fallen asleep or if the person next to you, give them an elbow in the jaw. Anything like that is perfectly legit. Actually, we're probably told not to do that if we read the law carefully. But wake them up. Uh, And Israel did not ever obey the law in order to earn God's love and salvation, okay? It was never the case that the Ten Commandments were given and Israel were told, obey these and you will earn God's forgiveness. You do hear people say that. In the Old Testament, salvation was by obedience to the law, and now in the New Testament, it's by grace. That is nonsense. If you glance up to verse 4 of chapter 19 with me, do you see where God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Again, verse 2 of chapter 20, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So their redemption was in the past. You can read about it in the first 12, 15 chapters of Exodus. God has already set his love upon them. Their obedience now was not so that they could enter into relationship with him, but so that they could enjoy their relationship with him. And right from the word go, the people said, we want that. So in chapter 19, verse 8, even before the law is given, when they know what's going to happen, they say together, we will do everything that the Lord has said. Again, after the giving of the law, in verse 7 of chapter 24, Moses has read the book of the covenant to them, and they reply, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Because for them, the law was a lamp that would lead and guide the people in their paths of righteousness. And on their good days, that's how it worked. We've sung from Psalm 119. uh, Oh, how I love your law. I delight in your commandments. The psalmist uh, meditated on God's law day and night. Sadly, the days upon which it worked like that were few and far between. Israel's default in the Old Testament was simultaneously to pride themselves for having God's law and to ignore it completely. And every time they failed, it was a further proof of why we all need Jesus. For us today, obedience looks a little bit different. Um, The law itself is full of reminders that it was being given to a particular people at a particular moment in salvation history for a particular purpose. So verse 1 says these words were given to those who'd been brought up out of Egypt. But I've never been to Egypt. Commandment 5 says 
um, about parents, this promise to Israel that if they obey, they will live long in the land that the Lord is giving them, speaking of the land of Canaan. But again, Canaan isn't our homeland. Scotland, or better, heaven is, actually. Commandment 10 in verse 17, none of my neighbors have any servants or oxen or donkeys. I know some of you hang out with people who have servants. That's not my world at the moment. All of those things are just little clues that our obedience to God is going to end up looking a little bit different to theirs. That these laws weren't never meant to be binding on all of God's people for all time in exactly the same way. Now, it's true that many Christians, even people in our own church family, I'm sure, will end up coming to slightly different conclusions on the exact way that Christians relate to the Ten Commandments or words today. My own view is that the way that we obey the Old Testament law today is by obeying the one to whom it pointed, Jesus himself, the new Moses. So God said, this is my son, listen to him. Jesus himself said, make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. We'll think more about the detail as the series progresses. Of course, many, many points of continuity in the way that our obedience will look the same, but some differences too. Listen to Jesus' own summary of how the law is to shape the life of believers today. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Um, Channel 4 made a documentary series a little while ago. Um, they tried to come up with a new moral code for society. The premise was the Ten Commandments are outdated, so how shall we live today? And uh, they did what they usually do. They dragged it out. They interviewed experts and people in the streets to try and find some new moral consensus for society. And in the end, they said, we've decided we don't need Ten Commandments anymore. We only need one. We think it should be this. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And I don't think they realized where that came from. I said at the start, most of us have a love-hate relationship with the law. But can you imagine how good it would be if everyone in St. Andrews, in the world, lived in obedience to that golden rule of Jesus. Do to others as you would have them do to you. We love it, don't we, when we know we're being told the truth in love. We hate it when we think that someone might be lying to us. We love it when people give of themselves freely to help us. We hate it when they think they might be talking about us behind our back. We love it when we're loved selflessly and faithfully. Wouldn't our society be a much happier place? Wouldn't we have much happier families? Wouldn't we be much better people if we lived the life of love that Jesus commands? Final thought, if we do know Jesus, if we've received his sacrifice, we will one day be part of a world of perfect love. God's law is a prophetic word that points ahead of itself, not just to Jesus, but to the new creation. The law paints a picture of what that world will be like. 
God right at the center of everything, being loved and worshipped as he should be. Everyone else treated with love and dignity. That is the world to which we are going. And that is the world of which our church can be a foretaste today by the power of the Spirit and in Christ as we love one another and worship our God. Let's pray together. Our sovereign God, what a wonderful thing it is that you do reveal yourself to us. Thank you for the way that these ten words color in our understanding of what you're like. And help us to see more of your perfections. We're sorry for times when we think we can come to you casually or flippantly or treat you with disdain and pick and choose when we listen to you. We want to worship you fearfully, reverently, with humble awe because of what you're like. Thanks for reminding us of the way that we do fall so far short, the way that your law silences us and reminds us of our need for Jesus. Uh, Help us to live humble lives before you and meek lives before one another that recognize uh, the, the depths of the sin in our own hearts. Help us too to thank you and love you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We're amazed to remember that he was never once selfish or unkind in thought or word or deed. Thank you for his perfect obedience, even to the point of death on a cross, so that we might be forgiven for our failure. We praise you for him. We praise you that you're at work in us, making us more like your son, transforming us into his likeness. Do that more and more, we pray. We need it. And so we ask for your spirit's work. And help us, please, over the course of these next 10 weeks to know what it means to live in obedience to you, to worship you as we should, to love our neighbor as we should. And so that our church, as well as our own lives, might be a picture of a new community in which Jesus is Lord and people are safe and loved and respected as we wait for the day when we go to be with Jesus in his perfect new world. Work in us, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.